1: October 31, 1810, an army of over 60,000 people made its way north to Mexico City, the viceregal capital of New Spain.
2: Spirits were high. This motley military, comprised mainly of native Mexican peasants, had just defeated a Spanish royalist force of 7,000 soldiers the day before.
1: However, not everyone in the caravan shared the optimism. Riding up front, dressed in his iconic black ecclesiastical robes, was Padre Miguel Hidalgo, the leader of this revolutionary army.
2: Miguel knew that his cause was just. For too long, the Spanish colonial government had imposed an unfair racial caste system that economically exploited those not born in Spain. Taking Mexico City could be the decisive blow that would ensure total triumph for the revolution.
1: The victories that had led to this point came at an incredible cost. Not only had thousands of soldiers died, but civilians, the people Miguel was fighting for, had been slain as well. Mexico
2: City had the largest population in all of New Spain, And the inevitable rampage would kill even more people and see large parts of the historic city destroyed. The two questions on Miguel's mind were, was victory worth the bloodshed?
1: And if not, could he find another way to free his people? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson.
2: And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a Parcast Original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. You can find episodes of Historical Figures and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts to stream historical figures for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type historical figures in the search bar.
1: Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing the life of Padre Miguel Hidalgo, a priest and revolutionary who's considered to be the father of the Mexican War of Independence.
2: At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network.
1: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information.
2: Now, back to the life of Miguel Hidalgo. The history of colonial Mexico began in 1519 when Hernán Cortés and his conquistadors landed there on behalf of the Spanish crown. Within two years, Cortés and the Spanish had conquered the Aztec Empire. New Spain was officially established. Immediately, they began subjugating the natives and forcing them to convert to Christianity under pain of death.
1: The conquering Spaniards established a strict caste system based on race. This system was very much in line with the Spanish political mindset of the time, believing that tiered, dependent classes ensured obedience to the crown.
2: At the very top were Spanish-born whites, called Peninsulares. Though they only numbered about 10,000, they held the highest offices in government and the church and, more importantly, a disproportionate amount of wealth.
1: Below them were the criollo, ethnic Europeans born in Mexico. Though they were also white, wealthy, and privileged, criollos were shut out of the highest levels of power and bore a larger tax burden compared to their Spanish peers. This ultimately bred resentment among the criollos who saw themselves as their own form of nobility.
2: At the very bottom of the racial hierarchy were the natives, the descendants of the Aztecs that Cortes had slaughtered. For nearly three centuries, they had been virtually enslaved, toiling in mining and agriculture to enrich their white overlords. They were forced to live in so-called Indian villages, areas completely separate from white Spanish society. They would have no political power and few rights
1: the native population of 2.5 million was oppressed, impoverished, and on top of everything, forced to pay tribute to the Spanish government. It should probably go without saying that they were resentful of what their European conquerors were inflicting on them. And they were able to share that resentment with our final cast, the Mestizo.
2: The Mestizo was the mixed-race group, comprised of European and native blood their status in society was somewhat complicated. At certain points in colonial history, the mestizo were forbidden from public life in reputable professions. Other times, they were permitted to integrate more into what was perceived as civilized society.
1: However, even if they were allowed to integrate, they were still seen as less than. And as the centuries ticked away, a natural resentment against the higher classes arose.
2: This was the political and societal makeup of New Spain for 300 years. And it was the makeup that Father Miguel Hidalgo sought to overthrow.
1: Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla was born on May 8, 1753, in the Criollo caste of colonial Mexican society. Born at Rancho San Vicente del Caño in present-day Guanajuato, he was the second of five sons born to Don Cristobal Hidalgo y Costilla and Doña Ana María Gallaga Villaseñor.
2: Cristobal was the manager of the Hacienda San Diego Coralejo, an estate that included Rancho San Vicente. When he was younger, the religious Cristobal had intended on joining the priesthood, However, a cataract in his right eye prevented him.
1: Miguel's mother, Ana Maria, grew up an orphan. However, at some point, she started living with her uncle on the very same ranch where Miguel was born. When Cristobal came to visit Ana Maria's uncle one day, they met and fell madly in love. One year later, they were married.
2: Growing up on a farm, Miguel was well acquainted with the racial inequalities in his country. He witnessed firsthand the conditions the natives who labored in the fields had to endure. Like his father, Miguel became very sensitive to their plight.
1: But it wasn't just the treatment of the natives that left an impression on him. The agrarian life exposed the young Miguel to the oppressive economic system that Spain had designed for its colonies.
2: Landowners in New Spain were not permitted to grow certain crops, like grapes or olives. The Spanish government held a monopoly on its colonies' economies and used it as a captive market, selling these items they couldn't grow themselves at an inflated price and taxing them.
1: To those who were not peninsulares, this was just another way for Spain to exploit the Mexican-born population. Its purpose was to show that there was no such thing as equality in colonial society. Despite
2: all of this, Miguel loved his life on the farm. He loved being in the fields and learning about growing crops and raising animals. But his destiny wasn't to die with a plow in his hand. His father made sure of
1: that. After teaching his sons how to read and write, Cristobal sent them off to further their education. In October 1765, 12-year-old Miguel and his older brother, José Joaquín, made their way 65 miles south to the city of Valladolid, today known as Morelia. They attended the College of San Francisco Javier, an institution run by the Jesuits.
2: Miguel excelled at his studies, impressing and earning the respect of his teachers. However, his time at the college would be cut short. After only two years, the entire school was shut down and the Jesuits in New Spain were expelled.
1: As educators in New Spain, the Jesuits had a great deal of influence on the minds of the young, especially the Criollo. And one of the more controversial teachings the Jesuits preached was that overthrowing a ruler was acceptable so long as it was just.
2: To King Charles III of Spain, This made the Jesuits, who are one of the more wealthy and influential Catholic orders, very dangerous. Colonial leaders looking to keep the caste system intact agreed, and when Charles expelled the Jesuits from New Spain, the Peninsulares were all too happy to follow their king's decree.
1: Given how long he spent with these radical priests, It's likely that Miguel's years at San Francisco Javier would have contributed to the embers of rebelliousness burning inside him. Who knows what would have happened had he stayed under Jesuit tutelage.
2: But Miguel's education wouldn't be derailed for long. In 1767, within a year of San Francisco Javier closing, Miguel returned with his brother to Valladolid, and attended the College of San Nicolás Obispo to study the priesthood.
1: Valladolid was an intellectual hub, especially for wealthy criollos. There's no doubt that Miguel felt invigorated by his return to the city. He dove headfirst into his studies, and once again impressed his teachers and fellow students. His quick wit even earned him the nickname El Zorro, or The Fox
2: but he was fox-like in other ways as well around this time Miguel began to secretly read books that were forbidden by both the church and the government it's unclear how he got his hands on these books or what specifically the books were suffice to say they must have been rebellious in nature and whatever ideas they were preaching Miguel absorbed for later use
1: while Miguel was possibly reading about revolution in school, an actual revolution was happening right outside his window. Pedro de Soria Roel, a nearby native governor, had gathered a band of disgruntled natives and stormed the city of Valladolid.
2: Pedro, like many in his social class, was frustrated about the conditions imposed on his people and wanted reform from the local colonial government.
1: However, Pedro's uprising was quickly suppressed and the native protesters were beheaded.
2: The government's brutality against the natives profoundly impacted Miguel. Unable to accept the status quo, the incident inspired him to dedicate his life to freeing the downtrodden people of Mexico.
1: Since his education had introduced him to thoughts of rebellion, miguel knew that his path was in academia and once he earned his degree in theology and philosophy in 1773 he was permitted to teach sometime
2: in the mid to late 1770s miguel returned to valladolid to teach at his old college of san nicolas obispo he started off teaching latin but eventually moved into theology as well
1: in 1778 while still teaching 25-year-old Miguel became ordained as a priest in the Catholic Church. Years of studying theology had finally led to this moment, and he was able to share the honor with his older brother, Jose Joaquin, who also became ordained around the same time. Despite the new ordination, Miguel continued his role as educator. In
2: 1787, at 34 years old, Miguel was appointed treasurer of the college. He clearly excelled in this role because by 1791, he became rector of the entire school.
1: Almost immediately, Miguel began instituting radical reforms in the textbooks and curricula. He had chafed at the orthodoxy of how theology and philosophy were taught at the college. Even as a student, Miguel often questioned the fundamental doctrine taught by the church. Now that he was in a position of power, he was able to change things up.
2: By this time, the Enlightenment was well underway in Europe. Radical new ideas like liberty, reason, religious tolerance, and a rejection of absolute monarchy were gaining popularity. A brave new intellectual world was being born, and Miguel wanted to be a part of it.
1: However, these philosophies were suppressed in Spain and its colonies. Radical thought, like the Jesuits before, was a threat to the Spanish crown. He had to read these works in secret, many of them in French instead of his native Spanish.
2: Rousseau, in particular, was a major influence on Miguel. His ideas about democracy and the natural rights of man spoke to the new rector, especially in regard to the mistreatment of the natives mestizos.
1: Miguel's reforms of the curriculum can be interpreted as his first true revolutionary act. He wanted to free the minds of the next generation and open them up to new ways of thinking, regardless of what the government and church had ordered.
2: Unfortunately for him, his time as rector was not long. Disgruntled colleagues and local officials denounced him for his reforms and demanded that he be removed. Seeing the writing on the wall, Miguel resigned as rector in 1792.
1: But if the forced resignation was meant to silence the increasingly vocal Miguel, it didn't work. His calls for radical change would only get louder, and soon he would have an army of followers at his side.
2: Coming up... Miguel Hidalgo finds himself away from the prying eyes of his superiors and on the road
0: to revolution. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story.
1: Miguel Hidalgo had spent the better part of his first 40 years in academia. A gifted intellectual he was drawn to the radical ideas of the Enlightenment. When he became a rector at San Nicolás Obispo, he changed the curriculum to reflect those ideas.
2: The move ultimately led to his forced resignation in 1792.
1: A year after the resignation, 40-year-old Miguel Hidalgo was sent by the church to work at the San Felipe Parish.
2: Given his record of disagreeing with church teachings, it might be difficult to reconcile his decision to remain in the clergy.
1: However, considering the church's influence in government, it's possible that he viewed the priesthood as one of his better options to help the downtrodden, especially the natives and the mestizo.
2: Whatever his reason, he remained in the priesthood, and despite the best efforts by the church to silence him, Miguel continued his subversive intellectual activities
1: in fact being in a small town and further away from the watchful eye of church offices in Valladolid may have emboldened him to push boundaries even further
2: while serving as the priest in San Felipe Miguel broke his vow of chastity he began having several affairs and even fathered a number of illegitimate children
1: He also continued to read banned philosophical works and openly debated some of the fundamental tenets of Catholicism. This included controversial topics like whether Jesus' mother, Mary, was a virgin, or whether St. Francis had truly received the stigmata, the same wounds Jesus received on the cross. It
2: wasn't just on matters of theology that Miguel would develop controversial opinions. He also denounced kings as tyrants, inspired by the recent revolutions in the United States and
1: France. The French Revolution held great sway over Miguel, so much so that his parish was dubbed Little France.
2: Miguel's assistant, Garcia de Caracada, was an intellectual kindred spirit. The two men would spend their days discussing such radical ideas.
1: However, Miguel's lack of discretion eventually caught up with him, His heretical ideas caught the attention of a friar named Manuel Estrada. Hearing Miguel's heresy and seeing his womanizing, Estrada reported him to the holy office in Valladolid, also known as the Inquisition.
2: Evidently, Miguel did not expect the new Spanish Inquisition. The council was responsible for investigating heresy and crimes against the church, And Miguel had committed many of those.
1: The Holy Office did a thorough investigation of the allegations against Miguel and although they were able to find several witnesses, they ultimately decided not to punish him. What
2: helped Miguel's case was that Estrada was known for exaggeration and many of the witnesses they had called contradicted themselves. Miguel was also respected in the region and prosecuting him would have potentially created more problems among the
1: people. Facing the Inquisition forced Miguel to realize that he had pushed his luck. He recanted his heretical beliefs, which helped them close the investigation against him in 1801.
2: Two years later, at the age of 50, Miguel was reassigned to the parish in Dolores, almost 200 miles from Mexico City. The reasons for the move were tragic. Miguel's older brother Jose Joaquin died that year, leaving the position of parish priest vacant.
1: Miguel moved to Dolores with several family members, including four of his illegitimate children and their two mothers. Dolores was substantially larger than San Felipe, and with that larger population came more diversity. People from every racial group and economic class lived in the town of 15,000, and Miguel interacted with all of them. He brought them together at his home, hosting discussions and cultural evenings.
2: Natives, mestizos, and criollos all found themselves under the same roof. They discussed the issues of the day and watched rudimentary performances of French plays
1: translated by Miguel. In Dolores, Miguel found a new group of people to preach his radical ideas to, And in time, it too became known as Little France. But unlike in San Felipe, he wouldn't simply rebel on the fringes of society and academia. He was going to take his revolutionary ideas to the next level.
2: Miguel had long been sympathetic to the plight of natives in Mexico, but now he was going to do something about it. He began to develop local industries in Dolores many of which were banned by the Spanish government.
1: The very first industry he started was planting mulberry bushes to farm silkworms. This, funnily enough, was expressly forbidden, as New Spain was expected to buy silk from the mother country.
2: That was just the beginning. Miguel cultivated forbidden vineyards, established a leather tannery, a blacksmith, and workshops for creating silk, pottery, and bricks.
1: The local economy boomed. The products made by the natives developed a reputation not only for their quality, but for their lower prices compared to the ones imported from Spain.
2: Miguel's kindness and help made him a local hero, especially among the native population. After decades of coming up against resistance from the church, He was finally making a difference for the people he wanted to see freed.
1: However, this joy was not to last. In 1807, colonial officials were tipped off and sent a detachment of soldiers to Dolores. When they arrived, they destroyed the beloved vineyards and mulberries.
2: To Miguel, the government policies made no sense, especially when all he was trying to do was make people's lives better. In response, Miguel started neglecting his ecclesiastical duties in favor of more intellectual pursuits. This included joining the Carretero Literary Club.
1: Literary clubs were popular with criollos around the country. The clubs allowed them to air their political grievances and discuss pressing issues surrounding religion, society, and politics.
2: Miguel impressed his peers with his passion and intelligence. And it wasn't long before he was one of the leading figures in the group.
1: These heated debates would eventually lead to the most serious discussion of all, revolution.
2: Despite centuries of oppression, there had never been a significant uprising against the national government in New Spain.
1: However, by the early 1800s, a number of factors came into play that would send the region on the road to revolution.
2: Between 1808 and 1810, Mexico saw massive droughts that led to widespread hunger and unemployment in the native and mestizo populations. Left to fend for themselves, their bitterness would soon reach a tipping point. Meanwhile, for the Criollos, it was news in Europe that would push them towards rebellion.
1: In 1808, Napoleon invaded Spain, deposed King Ferdinand VII and was looking to put his brother Joseph on the throne. There was no way the Spanish-descended Criollos would accept the rule of France.
2: Seeing the opportunity to angle for their independence, Criollos began establishing juntas or administrative councils in various cities. They argued that without Ferdinand on the throne, power reverted to the colonies. However, the Spanish-born Peninsulares argued that power remained with the Viceroy, the king's appointed representative in New Spain. This disagreement led to instability in the colonial government.
1: Back in Dolores, Miguel saw that conditions were right for a revolution. With the Spanish government destabilized, local government distracted, and the natives more disgruntled than ever, he would need to strike soon.
2: It's believed that Miguel began devouring books about war and conspiracies around this time as well. His ideas no doubt made their way to the Queritaro Literary Club. By 1810, the club's planning had begun in earnest.
1: Miguel emerged as the leader of the movement almost instantly. His sharp wit, education, and status appealed to the criollos, the class he was born into, Of course, his kindness, dedication, and aid to the oppressed natives and mestizos made him popular with the lower classes as well.
2: Miguel accepted his role willingly, but he wasn't fighting for pride or glory. He truly believed in his cause and wanted to apply the ideas of the Enlightenment and see the people of Mexico freed.
1: For Miguel, the question of revolution was not a matter of if, but when. He had no idea that within a few short months, his world and the whole of Mexico would be thrown into war. Coming up, the Mexican War of Independence takes off and Padre Miguel Hidalgo cements his place in the nation's history.
2: Now back to the story.
1: In 1810, Father Miguel Hidalgo was ready for revolution. After decades of reading the ideas of enlightened thinkers and seeing the oppression faced by the natives, the mestizo, and the criollos, he had had enough. It was time to act.
2: The 57-year-old had turned his literary club into an incubator for revolt. But in order to fight the Spanish, he would need weapons. For that, Miguel turned one of his local factories into an armory stockpiling spears, machetes, slings, and even cannons.
1: Numbers were also going to be key. The revolutionaries knew that a regional uprising would be crushed quickly. They needed to get support from around Mexico. First, he
2: earned the support of Captain Ignacio Allende, a Spanish army officer who secretly switched sides and joined Miguel. Together, The pair spent several months traveling the country, talking to priests, local juntas, and other leaders.
1: Eventually, they believed they had enough support and set a date for the revolution. December 8th, to coincide with the fair at San Juan de Los Lagos, they expected thousands to be there, mostly from the native and mestizo classes. With those numbers, a true revolution could begin.
2: However, as the saying goes, when men make plans, God laughs. By mid-August, their scheme had been leaked, and many of the conspirators backed out to cover for themselves. This was a smart move. Eventually, information about the revolution reached the regional administrator of Guanajuato, who immediately ordered the arrests of the conspirators in Dolores.
1: But unbeknownst to the administrator, his wife was a member of the Carretero Literary Club and involved in the conspiracy. Once the arrests were ordered, she immediately informed another conspirator who rode 25 miles to San Miguel El Grande to inform Captain Allende.
2: Late on September 15th, Allende arrived in Dolores on horseback along with another revolutionary. They woke Miguel from his sleep. And told him that they had been discovered they could either run away wait to be arrested or start the revolution early
1: miguel knew that there was only one option the revolution begins now
2: in the early hours of september 16th miguel and the compatriots rang the church bells rousing the people of dolores from their sleep
1: Once everyone gathered at the church, Miguel gave what would go down in history as El Grito de Dolores, the cry of Dolores.
2: In his rousing speech, he reminded everyone about their poor living conditions, how badly the colonial government treated them, and how revolution would improve their lives. He finished by shouting, Long live America! Long live religion and death! to bad government.
1: The crowd needed little convincing. After centuries of oppression, they were itching to fight for their freedom.
2: According to legend, the first thing the revolutionaries did was storm the jail at Dolores and free the peasant prisoners. Miguel supposedly took a pistol from one of his followers and forced the jailer to free them at gunpoint. They then rounded up the Panin Solares and locked them up in the jail If Miguel had any doubts, it was now too late. There was no turning back.
1: With an army nearing a thousand, Miguel marched to San Miguel El Grande where Spanish soldiers were waiting.
2: Along the way, he stopped into a small church and took the famous oil painting of the Virgin of Guadalupe.
1: The Virgin of Guadalupe is an important facet to the religion of the locals in Mexico. It was believed that in 1531, a native man named Juan Diego was walking through the countryside when he saw a woman dressed in traditional native clothing identifying herself as the Virgin Mary.
2: Seeing Mary dressed in traditional clothing came to symbolize God's blessing and love for the oppressed natives in Mexico. And as Miguel hoisted her image as a banner, she became a symbol of revolution.
1: The sacking of San Miguel was brutal. The revolutionary army easily overwhelmed the soldiers' position there, and they immediately began looting the town, something Miguel had expected to happen. After living in poverty for so long, this was their opportunity to take some of the wealth back.
2: However, what he didn't expect or condone was the sexual assault and killing of civilians that also occurred. Miguel knew that blood would be spilled during the revolution, but he did not expect his followers to kill innocent civilians, even though he understood their rage. This was perhaps naive, considering all he had read about the French Revolution. It also showed the limits of Miguel's leadership and how unorganized his army became.
1: In the wake of sacking, the rebels set up their own new town government. Miguel was soon recognized as the captain general of the army, and he immediately made Allende his lieutenant general. They then made their way to the town of Celaya, which met the same fate as San Miguel.
2: Despite his misgivings about how his army behaved, Miguel was emboldened by their victories. In the process... They increased their numbers to over 20,000, having gained followers from villages along the way.
1: At the end of September, Miguel took his army to the provincial capital of Guanajuato. When they arrived, the provincial governor refused to surrender, despite most of the inhabitants supporting the rebels.
2: The city defenders barricaded themselves inside a fortified structure, firing on the revolutionaries. During the course of the battle, Over 2,000 of Miguel's soldiers were killed. Eventually, the gates were breached and the defenders were massacred, including criollo elites. This moment is often compared to the storming of the Bastille.
1: Taking Guanajuato wasn't merely important symbolically, but economically. Miguel was able to seize vast amounts of gold and start an industrial base that included a foundry and a mint.
2: Within two weeks, Miguel had gone from clandestine conspirator to conqueror of a Mexican province. The radical shift in his position must have been jarring, but knowing Miguel Hidalgo, it must have also been invigorating.
1: With the revolution underway, Miguel soon learned that the Spanish army wasn't the only institution he was battling. The Catholic Church decided to throw its hat into the fight, too.
2: On October 10th, The Inquisition filed a report denouncing Miguel, accusing him of heresy and declaring war against the church and his country. He was ordered to appear before a tribunal or face excommunication.
1: Miguel found these accusations amusing. With a revolution to lead, he did not appear before a tribunal.
2: Instead. Miguel led his rebel army through town after town, attracting both peasants and militia soldiers to their cause. By the end of October, their numbers had swelled to over 60,000.
1: Eventually, they set their sights on Mexico City. On October 30th, 1810, the army made its way through the mountain pass of Monte de las Cruces, just south of the capital.
2: There, they encountered a royalist army of 7,000, the 60,000 rebels roundly defeated them, clearing the way to Mexico City.
1: However, at this moment, Miguel made a controversial decision that would completely change the course of the war. Despite being so close to the capital, he decided against marching on the city and instead ordered a retreat.
2: Historians don't really know why he did this some believe he determined that he didn't have enough munitions to successfully take the enormous city
1: others believe that he had simply seen enough bloodshed he knew what his army would do to the people of mexico city and he couldn't have any more innocent blood on his hands
2: regardless of the reason the decision proved to be a terrible mistake on november 7th the retreating army was attacked by the spanish thousands of miguel's men died
1: Within a few weeks, many of the towns that Miguel had conquered had been retaken by the Royalists. Thousands of civilians were slaughtered for collaborating with the rebels.
2: After this failure, the revolutionary leaders did not let Miguel continue as military commander. The consequences of the retreat proved that he wasn't capable of leading an army.
1: Humbled, Miguel accepted their decision His intellectual arrogance had led him to believe that reading about war meant he could competently command an army. Reality had proven otherwise. He would continue to serve the revolution, but this time playing to his intellectual strengths.
2: Despite their defeat, the rebellion was still going on throughout the country. Miguel established a newspaper in Guadalajara and made several political proclamations, including land reform for the natives. Battle loss aside, he still believed that the revolution could succeed.
1: Miguel also sent an ambassador to the United States to ask for their help. He believed that they would be sympathetic to the Mexican revolutionary cause, given their own recent fight against European colonialism. However, the envoy was captured and died in royalist custody.
2: The new year would bring more defeats. A large royalist army attacked Guadalajara in mid-January of 1811. Despite the revolutionary army of 80,000 vastly outnumbering the royalists' six, the royalists were better trained and equipped. Within two days, they routed the revolutionary army from Guadalajara.
1: Despite the defeat, Miguel remained defiant. When a royalist general offered him a pardon he flatly refused it. To him, pardons were for criminals, not patriots.
2: However, a defiant spirit would not be enough at this stage. They needed help. Since his envoy to the United States had been killed, he would now try to make it there himself.
1: Miguel, Captain Allende, and a small escort made their way north towards New Orleans. However, They would never make it out of Mexico.
2: A man named Colonel Ignacio Elizondo, frustrated with Allende, had defected over to the royalists. With a detachment of troops, Elizondo captured the revolutionary leader's caravan on March 21st, near Monclova. They were taken to the northern city of Chihuahua.
1: One by one, the conspirators, including Allende, were tried and executed. However, Miguel's case was a little more complicated.
2: As a priest, he couldn't be executed by a military court. He would need to be defrocked, making him a civilian and no longer under the penal jurisdiction of the church. Only then could his sentence be carried out.
1: In order to expedite this process, they found a local bishop willing to do the defrocking. Considering the church had been building its own case against Miguel for some time, it wasn't difficult.
2: On June 19, 1811, Miguel was publicly stripped of his robes. A lesser man would have succumbed to shame, but the priest of Dolores maintained his dignity. His decorum unnerved the priests that were tearing his garments.
1: On July 26th he received his death sentence again he maintained his composure despite his defeat humiliation and impending death he never lost his faith in his mind he was going to be a martyr for a greater good
2: four days later the sentence was carried out he was taken from his jail cell escorted out to the courtyard and placed before a firing squad
1: defiant to the end Miguel Hidalgo met the bullets of his executioners with his crucifix held above his head on July 30th 1811 the father of the Mexican Revolution was dead at the age of 58
2: however the revolution would not die with him his followers would continue the war for another decade until Mexico finally won its independence from Spain in 1821.
1: After the war, the church bell that Miguel rang that September morning in 1810 was taken down and moved to the National Palace in Mexico City.
2: Every year on Mexican Independence Day, the president of Mexico rings that same bell to celebrate its liberation and revive the rebellious spirit of Padre Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode.
1: You can find all episodes of Historical Figures and all other Parcast Originals free on Spotify.
2: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify's making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Historical Figures, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
1: To stream Historical Figures on Spotify, just open the app, tap, browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. We'll see you next time.
2: Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Historical Figures was written by Nick Rocholt, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.